I have to tell you, man, uh, we were in the life of David uh, for uh, several months, and we got to, to um, first Samuel, or I'm sorry, Second Samuel 12, and I thought, you know, we were out on the wood chips outside. Remember that? That was fun, right? We should go back out there just because we liked it out there. Um, and uh, felt like maybe it was a good time to take a break from Second Samuel. You know, I always especially think of some of you military folks that are here for like a year, a year and a half. I don't want to be in Luke like your entire time you're here. You know, I want to give you some variety. Like, like so you're not going, Monterey, was that the Luke church? Um, you know, um, so I try, to, I try to keep series going, but also have some variety and stuff. And and just digging back into 2 Samuel, I don't know if I chose to hop out here because it's just kind of a good stopping point. It's like the place where David is about to take the biggest nosedive, or if I was just a chicken, because 2 Samuel 13 is just terrible. And I got to tell you, this is a terrible passage. I need, this is all I need to tell you about the passage today. Well, it's a passage about a, a terrible crime. A woman is, is, is brutalized in this passage. It's like, it's one of those things that, that young people read and go, holy smoke, is that really in the Bible? Is that, is that good that it's really in the Bible? Or does this, this mean this is all ridiculous and I shouldn't pay attention to it? Like, this is one of those stories, you know? And, and um, you know, Tiffany gets all the slides ready and stuff. And yesterday, um, I, I had my notes open and I was going through and, and she looked over and saw that I, you know, had the sermon notes open. And, and she goes, hey, just so you know, I read the passage for tomorrow's sermon and yuck. <laughs> and I went, and so right then I said, Tiff, yuck. And I, I'm gonna have, to, gonna have to tell the family that. Yeah, it's so fun to teach through Luke. I and mean, in, in particular, last week's uh, story in Luke about Jesus' love for this woman who led a broken life and she finds just, not just peace and redemption at Jesus' feet, but she finds acceptance. She finds safety in Christ. And the story in 2 Samuel 13 is the story, man, I wish I didn't have to say words like this in church. It's a story of a rape, and it's just terrible. And I hate reading it, and I don't want to talk about it, and I would rather just stick in Luke where there's more happy things to talk about. And one of the things, it, it's almost like the exact opposite of last week's story. Last week's story gives you a picture of how the most vulnerable are treated in the presence of Christ. This is the story of how the most vulnerable are treated under the authority and power of selfish, dismissive, unsubmitted leaders. And I wish we could just go, this side of the cross, we don't have to worry about this anymore. Old Testament stuff, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And, but we're not there, are we? And I wrestle with, well, you know, this is a bummer of a Sunday morning. It's a lot more fun to talk about it, the empty tomb, and we're going to have to talk about it. You can't talk about something this terrible without also saying, look, the hope is in Christ. The hope is not that people are just going to get better. The hope is in Christ. And yet, it would be, I don't know, more enjoyable as a preacher, as a congregation, if we didn't have to talk about this stuff. But I don't want to be the kind of church that ignores it. I don't want to be the kind of church that pretends that this kind of terrible thing is not in the world and that God has not addressed it. For a few reasons, I think we need to spend time in stories like this. And first is because it reminds us that God is the only hero in the Bible. You remember, for those of you that were around for the you know, first and second installment of the life of David, you'll remember that was one of the big ideas is you read the story of David carefully and you go, wait a minute, is he a good guy? Is he the hero? Isn't he up on the flannel graph as one of the heroes of the faith? 
And an, a, a careful reading of the Old Testament makes it very clear there's one hero, and it's God. David has some heroic moments, and David follows the Lord, and things go well. But David also is a dirty, rotten sinner, and when he sins, God's punishment is never far away. And not only God's punishment, but the consequences for the people he's leading. There are terrible consequences for people who suffer under selfish, unsubmitted leadership. We have to also talk about this because it emphasizes um, one of the biggest ideas in the Bible, and it is exactly that, that the people suffer when they don't surrender to, that people suffer when they don't surrender to God and His reign in their lives, and not only the leaders suffer, but also people suffer under that kind of leadership. And, you know, whether you're a leader in a home, a church, a business, wherever it is, I just don't think we can ignore terrible stories like this. Because I think we need to say this, look, this was the psalmist. This was the guy who should have had the most, how do we say that? The, the most leg up on if anybody was ever going to run a family. Like he wrote, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. And then apparently did not lead his family in the Lord. And we need to say that even David not just doesn't get away with this, but even David is not capable of leading without submitting. It's one of the biggest ideas I want to talk about today, is that we all kind of live in a, in a world where what it really means to have made it is to not submit to anybody. I don't take orders from anybody. That's a very dangerous place to be, especially if we're unsubmitted to God's will, to God in our lives. So I think we also need to talk about stories like this because this kind of darkness is still with us. It happens all the time in this world. I wish it's uncomfortable reading it today, but I wish it was unfamiliar. It's a lot like reading the newspaper. I don't, I, it's been 10 years since I saw a newspaper, but you understand what I'm saying. And let's be clear too, this story is not here because it happened outside the people of God. This is not a story about what happened in Assyria or Babylon or in Midia. Or This is a story of the failure of the leaders of God's people. And it's pretty easy to identify evil out in the world. Like we're going to read about today, I think our minds would all go to the entertainment industry and, and rich and you know, powerful national and international leaders. But the thing that breaks my heart is how many of these stories uh, come from the church. And you know, I'd rather be a local church that is crystal clear about how we feel and how we understand these things than a church that avoids uncomfortable passages like this. Having said that, I'm uncomfortable. I know that, that sexuality and power have been used as a weapon in our time and in our, in our land and and. I'm aware of the statistics that probably as we even enter this, this topic, some of you will resonate with the story of Tamar. Some of you will understand what this girl's going through and have had, had power used against you and have had sexuality used as a weapon in your life. And, and again, it's, it's a difficult thing to address to a group of people like this, but one of the, one of the reasons I think it's appropriate as we go through 
the whole counsel of God is that we need to know how God feels about this. It's one of the things that makes our scriptures so different from other scriptures in the world is this kind of behavior in God's kingdom, this kind of behavior in Israel is not treated, is not addressed like it is everywhere else because kings can do whatever they want. Princes can do whatever they want. They have the power and they're the man to do it, but not in Israel. Such a thing is not like this is not done in Israel. And we have to say, the world's going to be a mess and the world's always going to be a mess, but how do we build not just a church, but the church where this is not, not only not tolerated, but we are, where we are a place of healing, where we're a place of comfort, where we're a place of peace, not a place where something like this kind of power can fester. I grieve that Christian churches and organizations have been involved in this kind of abuse. I think it's, you know, again, it's not comfortable, or um, it's not that I'm uncomfortable with that, but, but it, it, it doesn't make for a real, uh, it doesn't make for a lot of laughs on a Sunday morning, I'll say it that way, to, to talk about all of the things in the news that are brutal like this and come from Christian organizations. But it's wrong to, to ignore it, too. And I'm not arrogant enough, arrogant enough to say that it could never happen here, but uh, I can say that it wouldn't be tolerated here. I can say that our posture is humility, our posture is deep submission to God, and deep submission to each other. And these are things that David lacks, and his son Amnon lacks. There's submission to godly people and submission to God. You know, um, our posture is humility, our standard is the safety of Christ's love. Can I just say that at the beginning? Our hope around here and our hope for the church universal is that this would be a place where every person feels safe and cared for and built up and never in danger. We desire to be a place of healing, not hurt. Is there an amen? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I feel, I don't know, I don't know, I tell this story a lot, but it was a huge thing in my life. I've told you before, my, my senior pastor cheated on his wife when I was 12 years old, and it wasn't like this. It wasn't, um, th this story is more violent than that was. That was just good old-fashioned adultery. But I remember, and I've heard my dad tell the story about, as that was going on, there was a new juice bar opening up in Garden Grove. I never saw how that, those went together. You guys want some apple juice? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I guess you just couldn't get a liquor license at a topless. I don't know how that worked. But our church took it upon ourselves uh, to pray that out of Garden Grove. And Bob talked about that all the time. And he was in the pulpit praying against the sexual sin in the world, praying against the sexual sin to the north and to the east and to the south and to the west. And at the same time, he's having an affair in his office with, with people from the church. And we just have to be a place where that never happens. And I think talking honestly when you get to stories like this is one of the ways that we guard against ourselves in that kind of humility. Mostly we need to look at, at a season like this in Israel, as brutal as it is, we need to look at it because when we look at the depth of human sin, we begin to see the need, the love, and the glory of the cross as we cut ourselves slack as we look at the depravity of our own hearts. We're missing the glory of the cross. Each of us have great darkness in us. We'll talk about this as we go, but it's not just a few people that are susceptible to sin. 
And this particular sin, you might not be susceptible to. By God's grace, I've never had a wandering eye. Like, and pray for me. I mean, Satan loves to take down Christian leaders, but that's never been the thing that has been the problem for me. You know, that just hasn't been my thing. And maybe it's not for you either. And so maybe you look at this kind of story and go, I don't need that. And I go, yeah, we do. Because unsubmitted hearts with no accountability and too much power and lives that are focused on self instead of service sin festers. Maybe not this sin, but sin. So we need to honestly look at the darkness in our own heart. And as we do, like you got to have that Good Friday experience and then the Easter Sunday experience right after. You have to look and go, oh my gosh, do you see how terrible sin is? In part so that you can say, oh my gosh, do you know what Jesus saved us from? And So just as we get going, and I promise to start reading the actual passage in just two more pages of notes. (laughs) Just to get a head start to remember where we are as you flip through 2 Samuel, it starts with, with the end of Saul's reign. God establishes Israel under David. The ark moves to Jerusalem. There's a season of success, faithfulness that the first few verses, or I mean, I don't know, maybe like chapters, like call it four to, to 10 or 11 are kind of the good old days. It's where David is most at peace and doing the best job. Israel has claimed Jerusalem as the capital. The ark is in town. They've got a king that loves the Lord. Things are going pretty good. There's a season of success. And then we run into, in chapters 11 and 12, we run into David's great sin with uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. You remember that story where David is bored and, and, and that's why this is called the fall of Jerusalem part two because that was the fall of Jerusalem part one. And Jerusalem doesn't fall for like many, 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 many more years. But here's where it starts to crumble. And we need to look at this not as just, well, that was a rough season, but we need to look as this is the season where the leaders of God's kingdom gave away the shop, turned inward, thought about themselves instead of being the shepherds that God had called them to be. Instead, we're kings like every other king, full of power and full of themselves. So Bathsheba becomes one of David's wives, and for that to happen, David has to become not only an adulterer, but a murderer. And you'll remember that the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, Uh, It's actually David that pronounces it. He tells David the story. If you're familiar with the story that Nathan told David, or if you're familiar with the veggie tale King George and the Ducky, this will be familiar to you. (laughs) There's not going to be a lot of jokes in this. I got to take them where where I can. But you'll remember that Nathan comes to David and says, let me explain something that happened. Somebody who has a whole bunch of sheep took the one little sheep from the guy who only had the one little sheep. And David goes, this is terrible. Nothing like this should ever happen. That guy should pay fourfold for the sheep he took. And so Nathan goes, okay, you just pronounce the judgment on yourself. And so scholars will lay out for you how this is the second the child that is is produced from his affair with Bathsheba dies and that's the first fold punishment and this uh, story that we're reading today of David's children just doing the most horrible things you can imagine is the second of the reckoning for David's great sin and we see this idea of generational sin David's son Amnon chip off the old block. He's going to view the world a lot like David. 
And it's going to cost, in the end, David his kingdom for a time, and it's going to cost Israel for all time. So, to tell the story, I have to introduce you to a young woman named Tamar. We aren't told a whole lot about her. Verse 1 tells us that she is the sister of David's son Absalom and that she was beautiful. That's all we know about her. Also, we need to introduce you to a man named Amnon, who we are also told is David's son. So David has multiple wives, another example of that never working out in the Scriptures. That's the common thing. Well, how come there's multiple wives in the Scriptures? Go read those stories. It's never like, and then they save the day by having multiple wives. It's always stories of, of difficulty and, and struggle. So uh, Amnon is, is also David's son. And Tamar is the victim. I don't know if that's the right word to use. You're going to have to excuse me if I'm clumsy. I think we would, we would say survivor. We would say she is the, the one on whom the sin happens. But of really all three of these men, Amnon is an evil man. He's going to do evil things. Absalom is a vengeful man. Instead of caring for Tamar, we're going to see his hate and rage take over. And David, the sweet psalmist of the scriptures, is a passive man who could protect people and doesn't. So let's read the story. But again, more pretext. Sorry, it's the first sermon in a series. There's always a lot of pretext and context. I think for us to really understand what this story is driving at or how it lays out in the story of 2 Samuel, we have to roll the clock all the way back to about two-thirds of the way through the book of Judges. Um, if you get before Saul, before Samuel, who is the, the focus of the beginning of 1 Samuel, we find ourselves at the end of the time of Judges, and there is again a terrible story of a woman unprotected and undefended. It's the story of the Levite and his concubine. And this, this woman is actually offered up to abuse. She's offered to be the, the, the target of abuse by the men that should have defended her. She is abused. She is murdered. And her treatment triggers a civil war in Israel. That's, that's the last time we heard this kind of a thing is not done in Israel. This is the way everybody else acts. It can't be the way we act in Israel. And church, are you with me? The way everybody else acts, it can't be the way. Our standard has to be different. And this seems to be a low point in Israel. And partially because of that story, which is really an important story in the, in the timeline of Israel, partly because of that, um, it starts a civil war. It's seen as a low point. There's this idea of how could this happen here? We have become just like the other nations. And... So the idea starts that maybe what we need is a king. The judges isn't working. And so Samuel, this is a long story that I'm making. Still, I feel like I'm telling it shorter, but with the same amount of boring. So that's good. <laughs> Samuel says, okay, you want a king? Let's go get you a king. So we have Saul, we have David. And now, as David is about to pass the torch to either Absalom or Amnon, or we know it finally ends up with Solomon, I think one of the big ideas of this story is this, that we're right back to the same kind of sin. We've had a whole monarchy start, 
And we've had success in a monarchy and we've established a capital. And look, now we have a king like the other nations who leads on Yahweh's behalf. And yet here we are back to the most vulnerable of among us being the most abused among us. And the big idea is something like, I don't have this worded perfectly, but is something like, look, the system doesn't matter very much. If you have people that are not submitted to God, you can organize in whatever way you want. It wasn't about judges versus kings. It wasn't about tribes versus nation. It was about, are we going to submit ourselves to God? And I think that's true for us as well. It's not about the perfect system. It's not about the perfect church polity. What it's about is people whose hearts are submitted to each other and to God. So, the story starts in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13, and it says this, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, uh, David's son, loved her. Did he? We're going to challenge their definition of love here before this is over. He loved her, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. It says she was beautiful. It says she was a virgin, which means more unmarried than we think of virginity, but what we think of virginity is implied in that, that she was an unmarried girl. She was available And then there's that line that Amnon, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. And that is as gross as it sounds. That's where Amnon's heart's at. Following in the footsteps of his dad. The cycle continues. Just like David looked at Bathsheba, Amnon is looking at Tamar. Like something that could satisfy him and not someone he could serve. Are you with me? And I'll tell you guys, we would love to say, in fact, it's a pretty common argument against uh, believing in God to say, I don't need God to tell me not to treat people this way. And I would just commend to you the outside to say, when people are unsubmitted to God, other people get hurt. It's just what happens. Amnon is looking at Tamar, his half-sister, as something to satisfy him, not someone he can serve. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Don't name your kids Jonadab. It's, uh, he's a bad guy. The son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. So Absalom and Tamar are full brother and sister, same mom. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her her hand. Look, if you are looking to sin, if you are looking to deny God in your life and live for yourself, here's the the bad news. There's going to be a friend who empowers you to do it. There will always be somebody around to help you justify your sin. For Amnon, that's Jonadab. 
You know, for us, I feel like in some ways, it's the whole world. Every time we turn on anything, it's never like, hey, be sure you're submitted to somebody. How's your accountability partner? Are you going to Bible study and honest with prayer requests? No, every time you turn anything on, it's like, hey, you should set the course of your life. Nobody should tell you what you can do and you can't do. You chart your own life and you follow your own heart and you be whoever you want to be. There's very little encouragement to say, hey, look, man, life is scary and hard and it's harder when you're dumb and that's me. And you need accountability. You need somebody praying with you. And you need good friends who when you say, hey, I'm thinking about this, they say, I love you. That's dumb. Don't do it. But instead, we tend to surround ourselves with people who tell us, I can help you get that. You're the prince. You're the son of the king. What should be withheld from you? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. It says something about the culture too, doesn't it? That David's children are looking at the world this way. The question isn't like, is what I'm feeling in line with God's will? The only question instead is, how can I get what I want? Man, I would just ask you practically, do you have a friend who'll tell you when, when you're wrong? Are you that kind of honest with anybody? Man, I've said this before, but for a couple of years, I led a Celebrate Recovery, um, which is a Christian 12-step ministry. It's my favorite room I was ever in because people are honest. And the rules are you're not allowed to fix anybody, so nobody ever tells you don't do that, it's bad. But you're actually allowed to say what's on your mind, and nobody goes, what? I'll pray for you behind your back. You know, it's none of that. It's just you're allowed to be honest. Do you have those kind of relationships? Or do you have people that are encouraging you to follow your heart? Every thought must be captured. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 10? That we have to be those who capture every thought and bring them, submit them to Christ. Do you have a team around you that helps you do that? Because sometimes that is a team effort. Sometimes it's, look, I have an idea and I'd see, I need some help capturing it. I need some help figuring out if this is in line with God's will. I need, to find, I need some help figuring out if this is me just searching after my own pride, my own heart, or if this is really close to God's heart. Is this something I should do? Is this something I should? I can't, like God's voice and my voice sound an awful lot in my head sometimes. I need somebody to help me capture these thoughts and pray it through with me. And Amnon just doesn't have that. If Amnon had a decent friend, he would have said, you need to shave, <laughs> you, need to, you need to get out of bed, and you need to go find a girl that you're allowed to marry. We've got to surround ourselves with people that will listen to us. We'll listen to what's running around in our head, and we'll help us capture thoughts and submit them to Jesus. Do you have friends like that? If not, man, take first steps to build friendships like that. Amnon has the opposite of that in, John, in Jonadab. Verse 7 says, David sent, Tamar, sent, uh, sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. You know, this reminds the reader, the reader of, of the David and Bathsheba story again, where David uh, just has absolute, David just sees Bathsheba bathing and goes, hey, somebody go get her for me. And remember, there's even a servant that kind of pushes back goes, David, we know that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, right? And David goes, no, 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 just go get her for me. And David has reached a point of power. And I wonder, as we climb ladders and try to make our way in the world, if we don't go, that's what I want, where I have no accountability, where I do whatever I want, and I get to tell people what to do, and they just have to do it. And I want you to see the danger in that. 
that it's fine. If God entrusts you with leadership, praise the Lord. We need Christians in places of leadership, but we do not need Christians in places of leadership that are not submitted to God and do not have people that they are submitted to as well. But David does what he wants with no accountability. Tamar, go to your brother's house. Through the world's eyes, that probably looks like the pinnacle of power. This is just the life you want. Snap your fingers and people jump too. But this is not presented in the scriptures as the peak of power, but rather, rather the folly of a proud man. Man, as a staff, we read the Psalms on, before staff meetings and, and we just, you know, read a Psalm together and make a comment or two and pray together. And, and we read Psalm 27 this last week and it was just so beautiful. It's David talking about, God, you are the, my light. You are my refuge. You, God, you, you, you. And then I read this story in 2 Samuel 13 and I go, here's the bad news. I think we all have both those in us. David had, God, you, it's to you I care about. You are my refuge. You are my light. And he also says, hey, Tamar, get to your brother's house. There's a couple, in 2 Samuel 13, he's not consulting God, he's just ordering people around. This is a story of uncaptured thoughts and unsubmitted power. So Tamar, verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. How many commandments can you count broken? <laughs> it's about all of them. Covetousness and lying, and adultery. I don't know if it happened on the Sabbath, but, <laughs> but except for that, you can make a case for this is, this is full rebellion. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But, um, but he would not listen to the king, speak to the king for, oh, I'm sorry, but he would not listen to her. Um, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. We just have to be a place where this just never happens. We have to understand how God feels about this, where all of, the, all of the other nations, this is just a prince being a prince, but this is uh, in, in God's kingdom, this is, there's no place for it. There's, there's no place for the attitude. There's no place for the action. Tamar is not presented necessarily as a, well, she's victimized, but she's, she's, not, um, she's not presented as you know, a wilting violet. She does everything she can. Tamar's a, Tamar's a champ. She has a, a great argument. She says, first of all, don't do this, my brother. First, think about public opinion. Such a thing is not done in Israel. You know, she even kind of insinuates, look, you're going to be one of the great fools in Israel. You're not getting the throne if you do this. But Amnon doesn't care because when you get to that place and when pride takes full root in you like that, you don't even care about the future. You just care about the sin. 
She appeals to not only public opinion, but to his future, to her future. Then she even says, maybe there's a better way. Go talk, to, go talk to dad. Go talk to David. Maybe he'll set up a wedding. And all the commentators say, she knows full well there's not going to be a wedding. They're half brother and sister. This was not the tradition in Israel. She's just trying to get out of there. But despite her great effort, Amnon violates her. I hate this. I hate that we have to read this on a Sunday morning. I hate that people are capable of this. This is the depth of sin. This is what is in the human heart. And the first mistake is saying, oh, that might be in other people's hearts, but there's no darkness like that in mine. You know, Solzhenitsyn said the, the, the line of good and evil, it runs down the, the center of every human heart. And I think there's something to that. I think, there's, I think it's wisdom to look and go, man, this is not something that we don't have to worry about, but rather to say, man, God, maybe it's not this sin, maybe it's another sin, maybe it's another weakness, but I want to set my life up where I am so far away from this kind of selfishness, this kind of sin. You know, David's the one who wrote, none are righteous, no, not one. Again, maybe, maybe not this, but selfishness leads to pain. Uncaptured thoughts, unsubmitted power, the lust and violence of the human heart, it doesn't always end like this, but it always causes pain. I think it's so important to remember what Paul said in Galatians 5, that the works of the flesh are evident. They're not exceptional. The works of the flesh, the, all of the factions and anger and pride and lust and, 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 and violence and all those things, those aren't rare. All you have to do is look around. This is what comes out of the human heart. We have to tell this story so we understand our need for a Savior. Not just to, we don't need, just need a Savior to get out of hell. We need a Savior that we might not bring, be the ones that bring hell on earth to others. The moral of this story is not just don't do horrible things, but rather if your mind is unsubmitted to God, if you are not in the habit of catch, capturing every thought, if you are not in the habit of having people around you who can tell you when you're being proud, who can tell you when you're full of folly, then life's going to go off the rails. The story continues about like you expect. We won't read it, but Amnon doesn't love Tamar. As soon as, as, soon as he's done with her, he kicks her out of his house. In her grieving, she goes to her brother Absalom. He tells her that things are going to be okay, kind of brushes it off, but inside he is filled with rage and begins to plot Amnon's death. King David hears about all this and he's angered, but there's this line that says he doesn't do anything about it because he loves Amnon. And, and you know, the, this is another kind of evil. David is this passive guy that has the power to help, that has the power to bring justice and doesn't. May we be far away from that. Absalom's plot, Absalom starts to, to, to have a plot to kill his brother. This sounds a lot like Samuel's kids like Eli's kids it's just generational sin Absalom flees and David grieves for Absalom well besides acknowledging that this terrible story is in our scriptures and part of human history what do we do with it is there any growth to be had for us first of all I think we acknowledge our own propensity to sin I don't think it's a weak person that says I've got great sin in me. I think it's an honest and a strong person that says, God, there's darkness in my heart too. 
How do I submit it to you? How do I build my life so that this is something that I'm never a problem in other people's lives? You know, all sin separates us from God, but great sin is closer than you think. At least this is not a story of how David and his sons plotted to wreck the kingdom. We talked about that with David and Bathsheba too. This is not a story of of Amnon and Absalom wringing their hands and going, hey, how do we mess up everything dad's built? Rather, this is a story of just what people do when they don't have accountability, when they're not submitted to God, when they're just living for themselves. And again, my life, your life, I don't have this kind of power. (laughs) Your life and my life might not end up like this, but it ends up in sorrow. Second, I think we acknowledge that people, people suffer greatly when leaders are selfish. And again, we're talking about the church. It's always easy to pick on the world, but let's worry about us. And again, I don't care if you lead a business, a family, a church, you're in a military position of leadership. Unsubmitted power cannot be part of our lives. Of course, we have to be submitted to others. We have to, accountability is important, but man, we must be submitted to God. We have to be those. Look, if you're in leadership, let me say it this way, your prayer life is more important than your acumen in your field. Your worship is more important than your training. By far, there's plenty of smart intelligent, well-trained, talented people that fall all the time because their interior life was not pointed at God. Three, I think we, we make a pledge together that this will not be a place where the sort of violence will be tolerated. There's lots of practical things. You know, we do a lot of practical things. If you, well, I stand up here and go, hey, if you want to work in children's ministry, we need lots of help. But then we make you go through some pretty rigorous training with a company called Ministry Safe. Um, we do a background check. We do everything we can to make sure this kind of thing is never a part of Lighthouse. I think we need to set our lives up like that too. But even in all of that, it's always going to come down to submission to Jesus. Are we trying to build our kingdom? Are we trying to build the kingdom of Lighthouse? Am I trying to build the kingdom of Grant? Or are we all about the glory of Jesus and nothing else? Fourth, we have to become a place of healing. Man, I want to be a place where if, if Tamar went here, she would know that this is a safe place where she could find rest and she could find help. Where this is not a place where people feel like they have to hide pride or sorrow or a past or whatever, but that this is a place where we can look at each other and go, man, Jesus loves you so much. We do that in practical ways, lots of relationship. Supporting and cheering for Set Free Monterey Bay, I think, is important as they tackle human trafficking in our area. By steering far away from any culture that would demean or dismiss anyone. Where we don't pretend that submission is unnecessary, but rather it's built into the fabric of everything we do. Do you see the importance of humility? Do you see the importance of submission? Do you remember that Paul says this is what it means to be in the church, that you would submit to each other in love? 
Lastly, we find our safety, our rest, our refuge, and our example in Jesus. Man, are there any heroes in the Bible? Except for the person of Jesus. Isn't every Old Testament like glimpse of what it might look like if there is a, a godly person at the top of the heap, if somebody is actually submitted to God, if somebody is actually leading like leadership should happen, isn't the only fulfillment of that in the person of Christ? Don't we look to Jesus as to lead like him? If we are wounded and hurting and need to know how God feels about us, don't we look to Jesus and how he treats the least of these and the wounded and children and, and women and sinners and we look to him and go, man, I am the sinner falling at his feet and receiving love and being accepted and I want to pass that love and acceptance on to the rest of the world. Man, it's a hard Sunday. I promise next week won't be this hard. Although there's one more tough one before David gets his act together just a little bit. But I don't think we can ignore this stuff. And I think we need to say that what's going to typify us around here is the humility of understanding that nobody is, uh, um, nobody is good enough to not need submission to God and humility and submission to his people. And we have to be the kind of people that don't hold each other at an arm's distance, but rather are submitted, not only to God, but to each other in love. Uncaptured ideas, uncaptured thoughts, and unsubmitted power. May those things never typify the church of Jesus. May we build lives that are far away from uncaptured thoughts and unsubmitted power. And we're going to sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee Now. And, and I love this song uh, always. And truthfully, I've played it, we've practiced it like five times, and I'm no good on it, on the guitar, so just keep singing. Um, um, but I love this song all the time. But after I hear Tamar's story, and after I see the depth of human sin and the violence that's just resident in humanity, it just makes me love Jesus so much more that there is an answer that we don't have to um, be people who say, uh, well, that's just the way it is, but rather we can be people who say, Jesus died so that each person who turns to him would have the expectation of him wiping tears away, welcoming us into his presence of peace and that we might find the safety, security, and the love that our heart desires in the person of Jesus.